Welcome to the second episode of Cracking Charity Chat, Learning from the Leaders, with me, Beth Crackles. In each episode, I aim to give real examples of how things have worked in practice, demonstrate how good leaders approach the given subject area, and provide some top tips that people can apply in their own organisation. In this episode, I'm joined by Joe Jenkins, Director of Supporter Impact and Income at the Children's Society. I learnt a lot from working under Joe at RNIB and at Friends of the Earth, and it's fair to say that he really knows his stuff. So I hope that you get a lot out of this chat too. Hello Joe. thanks for joining me today for Cracking Charity Chat. It's really nice to be here at the Children's Society. Joe is Director of Supporter Impact and Income at the Children's Society, a trustee at Refugee Action and is currently Chair of the Institute of Fundraising Convention Board. Yeah, that's, that's the first half of the week and then I uh, do my own thing after that. Right. What, have I missed out any extracurricular activities there? Uh, well, no, that, that, that tends to keep me fairly busy. Okay. Okay, great. Could you give us a bit of a background about your work in the sector and a bit about the Children's Society as well? Yeah, sure. So I've been in the charity sector working with charities since the early noughties, so nearly 20 odd years now. And I started off working at a direct marketing agency called Pell & Bales, which was primarily telemarketing and almost all charity clients. And that was a really great induction into the sector at large. I was working with 25, 30 odd charities at different times, which was really insightful and I went from there into the Royal National Institute of Blind People and I was there for about five years, then Friends of the Earth and then and then here at the Children's Society. And I guess through all of that time, although the causes have often been quite different, what I found really motivating has been working with causes that are about social justice. That's what I really care about, things that are uh, not just fixing today's problems but trying to stop them being problems in the future as well. So trying to change the status quo, trying to do things differently and finding ways to engage supporters, engage the public at large in making those causes successful. And so throughout all of the different organisations I've been involved in, that's been the question we've been trying to crack is how do you go from a relationship where people just give you cash and then you go and spend it on good stuff to actually how you connect people with the cause and the mission and what you're trying to do and enable them to play the, the fullest possible part. And that's really what we're trying to do here at the Children's Society. So I've been here since about 2016, a couple of years now, and we've got a pretty bold, ambitious strategy for the change we want to see for vulnerable young people here in the UK. We work with some of the most vulnerable young people who often fall through the gaps, who don't have anyone else to turn to, and we try to reach them both directly to work with them hand in hand in their community with the challenges that they face and help them to turn things around. Um, But then we particularly look at what are the disadvantages that they're facing in the first place and how do we tackle those? So what are the systemic challenges that young people face? And they might be around policies or systems or the way in which young people are viewed in society. How do we change that so that we're not just helping young people in crisis today, but we're avoiding those crises in the future? Okay, lovely, thank you. One of the questions that I wanted to ask was about sort of fundraising for difficult causes and poverty in particular so obviously I used to work at Toynbee Hall which is an anti-poverty charity and and there are certain challenges that I found in working for an organisation like that and when I looked at the homepage of the Children's Society you've got sexual exploitation, you've got drugs trafficking, you've got probably like some of the most difficult things to fundraise for. What's your response to people when they say it's difficult to fundraise for this because it's a difficult cause? 
definitely for the Children's Society, we work with some really tough issues and deliberately so. We focus on some of the hard truths that are, are present in young people's lives that often don't get talked about. So we have a kind of moral responsibility to have those issues talked about. And so we do need to grapple with that, that sort of head on. And um, I'd say, first of all, I don't know anyone in any charity who's never said, oh, our cause is really difficult to, to fundraise for. It's and you can definitely objectively say, well, it's probably more tough to talk about this thing than that. But actually, everybody feels that there are difficulties with their particular charity that they need to sort through. So we might say, oh, well, cancer charities or health charities, they're really easy, aren't they? And then you speak to people in those charities and they'll say, oh, yeah, but we do research and research is much harder than doing palliative care. And then the people in the palliative care charity will say, oh, if only we did research because people care about the solving the problem, not just help. Yeah. So the problems are always there. And, uh, and and the solution is the same, really, which is, firstly, you need to talk authentically about what you're there to do. So there's, uh, I think, a problem for charities that try to get around it by talking about other stuff and pretending that the stuff they really do um, isn't the stuff that people are supporting. But then secondly, it's about finding the way to tell the story that resonates with whoever you're trying to connect with. So if, you're, if it's for fundraising or broader support to engagement purposes, understanding more about who your audiences are and what's relevant to them and what's their connection to, to your cause is the route into the telling of that story. And you don't need to tell all of the story in the same ways to every audience every time. So it might be that when we're partnering with an institutional funder who understands the complexity of the issue as well as we do, that we might have a very technical discussion about the specific systemic challenges around something like child sexual exploitation. When we're working with a, a community group who whose entry really is a concern that there are young people who don't have anyone to turn to, we can tell the same story authentically, but we don't need to go into the specific details of, say, child sexual exploitation. Yeah, completely agree with that. I um, made that sound really easy, didn't I, Beth? You just just do that and it's, yeah, uh, it yeah, all yeah. works fine. It's, I mean, it's hard. It is hard always to find a way to tell your story because often the organisation gets in the way of how you tell your story. Someone said to me once, if you want your story to be shared, then don't just think about how you tell the story to somebody, but think about how that person tells the story to somebody else. So thinking not just about, well, we need to get our marketing messages and this is how we will talk about our work and here's our case for support. But more importantly, what's the key thing that uh, someone can then tell and tell again and tell again? That's the sort of, that's the nub of the story. Yeah, yeah. That makes me think of something completely different, which is a training course I went on with the management centre. And it was something about having the confidence to speak in front of people because I was basically petrified of people. And Bernard Ross told this, slightly ridiculous story and then asked me to speak to the whole room and I was like I can't do this <laughs> and so he he, um, he stood in front of me and made me tell it directly to him and then he eventually took steps backwards but I had to say it as if I was still talking to him but the language that I used to tell that story was actually quite different to what he used so yeah it was the same story but different different slant I guess yeah yeah, he's, he's not bad, that Bernard Ross, is he? Yeah, he's all right. <laughs> he does this other thing. Uh, he's been doing it for ages, so everyone probably knows this. Uh, but he, get, he does this thing where he gets the whole audience to bang their chests and say, I am not the audience, just as that continual reminder that um, the person you're telling the story to is not you. I mean, we, we could just do a podcast about Bernard if you want, because there's quite a bit of material there. <laughs> yeah, I think he's got enough press, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, OK, all right. Let's move on to talk a little bit more about supporter relationships 
but sort of at the macro level, in your la- if you like. So when you started out in fundraising at Pelham Bales, I guess the world was a completely different place. So it was before there was the recession. It was before there was such a lot of digital fundraising. There was the whole like direct marketing, which took off in the 90s. You've got all these people doing committed giving and the world's going to be fine because we've acquiring all these people and then yeah I think just about as I started in the sector there's no coincidence everything sort of fell off a cliff a bit in 2008. <laughs> yeah we used to have such golden times and uh, I feel I feel very old I feel like when I talk to my daughter and say oh you don't know what it was like when we only had a few tv channels and we had to use a landline yeah. Trust and confidence in charities while it's still high obviously as a sector we've got some challenges about that and I mean feel free to talk about that if you want that's a whole other like <laughs> ah chief exec Um, so yeah yeah, how have things changed and how has it impacted on the work of supporter management and individual giving in particular really if i think back to those those sort of pill and bales days and uh, and the sort of boom time in direct marketing which has been one of the big sort of fuel has fueled a lot of the voluntary income growth in the sector really we cracked it as a numbers game and we'd worked out that direct debits were a really profitable way to engage supporters and all routes therefore began to lead to direct debit so we wanted to sign people up to direct debit increase the value of their direct debit and keep them on a direct debit for as long as possible and if you supported in another way we then look at how we could convert that support into direct debit support. And the basic model, the numbers model, was then looking at, well, we know how many people we've got at the start of the year on their direct debits, and we can project that 5 to 10% of them will probably cancel during that period. So we need to recruit 5 to 10% to stand still. And then if we want to grow, then we need to try and keep as many as we can, uh, get more than we lose, and also see if we can upgrade those people who are on a direct debit to give a, a higher value. And so then everything then became about optimising that fundamental model. So it's looking at what's the cheapest way to get the most number of people to sign up and what's the best way to convert people, what's the best way to upgrade people. And we finessed and finessed all the techniques to do that. So what's the best ask structure in a telephone call and what's the best layout for a direct mail ask and what's the best time to upgrade and can you upgrade again a second time and a third time and what's the time when people react what's the best proposition to bring them back onto a direct debit again and so that that became the the whole model and the whole focus for a lot of our direct marketing and so all of our channels and our propositions and supporters themselves were all about servicing the profitability of that kind of product model now in a way that was really effective for a period of time because the return on investment grew and grew and lots of charities that did that well were able to raise more funds which has enabled them to do more more good work so i don't want to suggest that this is a fundamentally uh, wrong thing to do or charities that continue to do that kind of thing um, now um, uh, are doing something wrong it's not a right or wrong judgment however i think what we found is that that was not a sustainable model at scale for the whole sector and there was a limitation on how f- how long that could grow for and also we fell into um, what we might think of as the the, the tragedy of the commons you're familiar with that kind of no. concepts <laughs> um, so it came from years ago when we had common ground 
and people would you know, take their livestock, take their cattle to, to the commons. And one person taking their cows and sheep to the commons um, could eat the grass indefinitely and there was no problem with that because their one set of sheep and livestock weren't going to devastate the commons. Um, however, okay, okay, if yeah. everybody took their livestock there, then within a short period of time there would be no commons left. And so no one individually was the problem it was collectively everybody. And I think we've encountered that same challenge with both that kind of direct marketing, direct debit obsessed focus. No one charity has been the problem, but when all charities are doing that at scale, it's created a commons problem um, for, for fundraising more generally. And that then plays into that challenge around um, trust and reputation and everything that then burst out with uh, Olive Kirk and then the political media scrutiny and so on was not, I don't think, the, the challenge of any individual. It was a business model that we had collectively subscribed to and it was the collective impact that then was causing problems to the general public. One of the challenges with, with moving away from it, particularly for organisations that don't have a steady income stream, that, well, that's what direct marketing gives you, doesn't it? Because like you say, it's a numbers game, so you can project reasonably well your a sort of a base income. So I guess the, the challenge of adapting that model, particularly for smaller organisations who don't have the resource and skills to there or to bring in, is... Where do, where do you get that money from? The multi-million dollar question that everyone's grappling with because the direct debit model um, also enables you to, to drive scale. And the vast majority of organisations so far have struggled to, re to replace that. However, I think there is lots of exciting light at the end of the tunnel because um, the, the, the change, as I was describing, is not just about the sustainability of the direct debit model. It's actually the way in which people want to connect with causes is changing all around us. And that creates new opportunities to engage if we can connect with people in the ways that they want to be connected with. What in, does that look in like? In non-financial ways too, I guess. Yeah. Well, if we if we also think about alongside the kind of global commons problem of, of everybody adopting the same tools and techniques so that charity engagement ended up looking the same, you could literally swap charity logos and the experience would be the same experience because we would use the same templates. We would ask for the same things. We would just have a different case for support. But actually, it was largely the same thing. And what we lost, therefore, was the supporter experience. So people aren't just buying a product to enable charities to go off and do something. Actually, they're motivated by the thing itself you're trying to do. They're motivated by the cause. They're motivated by the social problems that you're trying to solve. And the more and more obsessed we became with uh, how do we get people into direct debits, the less and less attention we paid to what the experience of engaging with the supporter felt like and how you connected them really fundamentally to the, to the cause. Clearly, the other thing that's changed, as you were describing, is things like the proliferation of technology and the multiple channels that we now have at our disposal that weren't available to us before, which means that we've got lots of different places and spaces to meet with people um, online as well as offline. And they give us new opportunities to be able to reach people and tell our story in lots and lots of different ways, which is really, really exciting. To make that work, though, we need to get beyond that short-term ROI-obsessed 
direct debit approach, which is looking at how much does it cost me to have that interaction and what's the return on that one interaction, which is where most of that kind of direct marketing model has, has been focused, to actually what are the range of different engagement points that we can have with our supporters and overall how much will we invest in that to generate value and recognising that that value is not just financial value, it's everything people bring to bear on the problems your charity is there to solve. So can you tell us a little bit about lifetime value? Because I remember at RNIB used to have endless meetings about this and numerous uh, complicated calculations. I'm sure a lot of people will understand it conceptually and a lot of people talk about, well, as senior managers, you need to lead the sector and invest and you like you say, not to worry about the initial return on investment and know that that's going to improve over time. So tell us a bit about lifetime value and then how you get your chief exec on your board to agree with you on this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, firstly, let me describe at the Children's Society when we talk about lifetime value. We're starting with a view that we want to enable people to play the fullest possible part in our mission. And so when we talk about lifetime value, we're talking about the total contribution people can make to changing children's lives. For us, we're looking at cycles of disadvantage that young people get trapped in individually and over time. And we're looking at how do you break those cycles for those young people? And we know to do that, we need to bring a whole community, a movement of people together to try to break those systemic challenges that young people face and reach those in crisis today. And that means that, yes, we need financial resources. We need people to be donating, investing, chipping into the work that we do because it costs money to do stuff. But that's one part of the the solution. It's not all of what we need from people. We need people to bring their time and their voice. We need people to volunteer and get involved in our projects, in our shops, in our communities. We need people to join with us to campaign and amplify young people's voices and uh, and call for the changes in both national and local legislation that will affect children's lives and when people need to uh, we need people to bring their ideas we want to bring their uh, networks and their social capital so all that people can bring to bear now that's easier and said than done because all of our systems and processes are set up around how do we ask people for donations and and direct debits and so thinking about lifetime value firstly as a strategic focus so we want to enable people to play a fuller role so that means we need to create more opportunities to get involved in more ways and we need to value those ways equally is the first part of that so just as a strategic focus for the organization because everything that flows from that in terms of what you ask your teams to do what you organize your processes to do what your systems need to be capable of will be driven by that decision Um, but then you need to start to look at um, how do you value that and what uh, tools and metrics do you use? And you can get into a lot of complexity as uh, experienced at RNIB and at Friends of the Earth and at the Children's Society. There's no simple buy it off the shelf lifetime value model, but there are things that you can do pragmatically to point you in the direction of your strategy and then tools you can develop over time. So we have been looking at a lifetime value model here that values financial contribution, 
volunteering contribution and campaigning contribution so that we can look at people who support us and understand the different ways that they get involved. And our, uh, our strategic goal, what I report on to, uh, to the chief exec and trustees, has at the top life, growing the lifetime value of our supporter base so that we can start to look at that both as a overall metric, but then you can break that down and you can say, well, how many volunteering hours did our supporters contribute this year and how might that grow over time? How many campaign actions did our supporters take and how might that grow over time? How many donations did people make? and start to look at a set of metrics that flow off of that. So you can start to look at, well, how many people get involved in more than one way? So it's valuable to us that people who have donated also campaign and that people who volunteer also make a donation. So how can we look at the ways in which supporters are getting involved in more ways? Because we believe that that will increase their loyalty and support and experience of the children's society. And it means that we'll have more impact in children's lives as well. That sounds amazing that you've started at that strategic level and it makes complete sense, doesn't it? I think a lot of people start at the direct marketing level though, don't they, in looking at at that, at, that, at the numbers game of it. And that's probably where, where we're coming a bit stuck with it. I think that's right, Beth. And you have to go with where the energy in the organisation is. And it's uh, you, you can have a, a beautifully conceptualised ideal about how you want to change your fundraising, change your support engagement and so on. And then you run into the reality of being an organisation that's also got short-term pressures and constraints and um, processes that have been around a long time. I mean, here at the Children's Society, we've been around for the best part of 140 years, um, which is a real strength because we have a community that's been on a very long journey with us and people who support us because they support the Children's Society um, as much as the children that we we work with. Um, but what also comes with that is the challenge of being around for 140 years and all the processes and um, complexities and bureaucracies that build up over time. Someone once painted this to me as a, a really helpful way of thinking about what happens in organisations. If you think when you get a new um, computer or device and on day one you switch it on and it fires up immediately and everything works really quickly and it's really, really useful. And then slowly over time it gets slower and slower. It seems to take longer to load up and applications keep crashing and and it just generally grinds to a halt. And that's kind of what happens in organisations is that they you start up fresh and then you just overlay complexity and process and legacy issues until you start to, to, to grind to a halt. And what organisations need to be able to do is the same thing you need to do on, on, on that computer, which is to sort of reboot control it, refresh delete. it, control, delete, exactly. <laughs> switch manager. It on, switch it off, switch it on again. Um, no, that's right. And uh, and the organisations that, that I think are, are going to thrive in the future are the ones that are able to refresh and renew themselves um, and, and do that reboot. Those that just try to keep going with all those kind of processes that they've built up are just going to grind to a halt and get overtaken by, by the new devices. Mm, yeah, that's a really good analogy. One of, the, one of the things that I found at Toynbee Hall, similarly 140 years old, there were ger- generations of people still engaged with the organisation, but one of the challenges was that while they were really loyal to us, they didn't really have a clue what we did anymore because they had this certain memory of what the organisation did or something really special that happened at, in, in that building. And so taking them on that journey as well was, was really important and, and sometimes challenging too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I definitely found that. And uh, so like at the Children's Society, I meet people who uh, support us because they were either adopted by the Children's Society um, or, or were the adopters 
for a long period of time uh, back in the 20th century we were one of the largest adoption agencies in in the country now and we still uh, run a, a post adoption service where we support people who are looking to, to reconnect with families and, and all that kind of thing and um, but we don't do adoption work now uh, we work in in very different ways and um, what we're always trying to do is connect why we were uh, involved in adoption at that time with why we're involved with what we do at the moment and that actually it's all part yeah. of the same story and I think one of the things that I, I think is really powerful about the Children's Society is that we have over that 140 years had the ability to reinvent what we do whilst not losing sight of who we are. Um, and I think that's what you see the most successful businesses do. Those that sort of pivot into new business models still have at the heart the DNA of what that organisation is. I mean, the sort of classic example of that is Nokia. I and mean, if you look at Nokia's history, the the nature of what they do has fundamentally changed several times over. In the same way that Netflix didn't start out as uh, one of the biggest producers of content in the world. Mm. Um, but actually, the, the Netflix today still has the same DNA as the Netflix that was putting DVDs in the post. I think that's that's what we need to be able to do with our organisations where we've been around for some time, is to say, well, actually, the reason we're here and the cause that we're fighting and the change we're trying to make in the world has been consistent throughout our history. And what we always need to do is find new ways to do that. So I read, I read um, actually, on the train down um, that a few people had suggested that direct mail will be more about retention and... Um, legacies and mid-level giving in the future as opposed to a tool to acquisition is that something that you would agree with so i think that's probably true on balance i'm always wary of over prescribing one channel for one purpose because i think it as always it starts with different audiences and different types of engagement at different times I don't sign up to direct mail being dead or, or any channels being dead. I think we'll just use them in different ways at different times. If you go back to the, the conversation we're having about that kind of direct debit, direct marketing model being around numbers, then I think expecting to recruit onto direct debit or even onto a cash donation, high volumes of supporters through direct mail is unlikely to be successful. So in that sense, as a recruitment tool, as it's been used in the past, I think that's we're not going to see that being very successful in the future. But I wouldn't rule out any channel being used for any purpose, to be honest, because I think it will always ebb and flow. And as quickly as we say, oh, yes, that won't be about recruitment anymore. A charity will find a way to have a, an amazing campaign that mm. signs everybody up through direct mail. Yeah. I think that I think this article had the Samaritans saying, well, actually, we're doing very well from it and we've seen mm. growth as well. Any guru saying this is dead, this this is how it works, any kind of definitive statement of it's about this or it's not about that um, is uh, is almost invariably wrong. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, gurus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but they make good headlines, so, uh, yeah. you know. But, yeah, it's about taking your, taking your organisation and your story, isn't it, and, and adapting the, the channels for your purpose. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're number 13 on the big hitters. <laughs> we love I the am. fundraiser list. Um, do you think your dog is going to help you get into the top 10? That is my main plan. I've been using my puppy Axel Rose diligently on social media and uh, I find that I get far more likes and retweets when the puppy's in the picture than when I'm uh, sharing my great advice on charity fundraising. So uh, yes, that's yeah, that's definitely okay. the plan. Um, although I will say as well, one of the heartening things about that list is that it has hugely diversified from previous years yeah, and yeah. it would be great if that was the case. So I'd be, I'd be quite happy 
happy to not be on the list at all, as long as I'm not replaced by Bernard Ross or someone like that. Yeah. Final question is, is there a particular person or book or film, as you mentioned earlier, you're into film, that has inspired your work? Hmm. Uh, okay, I'll pick, I'll pick a book and a person. So the person, I love everything about her, but so Maya Angelou. Um, and uh, in particular, there's, there's a quote that stuck with me for years and years. She said, people will forget what you say and they'll forget what you do, but they'll never forget how you, how you made them feel. And, and I love that quote because I think it sums up the whole point of what we're trying to do here in charities is connect with people emotionally to make things better. Maya Angelou is awesome in lots and lots of ways, uh, but that yeah. quote really has stuck with me and I always draw on it when I'm thinking about the work that we do. And the book, uh, more practically, there's a book that I've read a few years ago, which I draw on all the time, uh, called Team of Teams. And it actually starts with a description of how the US task force in Iraq needed to organise itself differently in order to succeed in, in the battle against Al-Qaeda, which isn't necessarily a kind of go-to for a, 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 a charity professional. However, in working that through, the book explores what they did and how that represents the, the changing model for, for any organisation in the 21st century. So they look back over the 20th century and how we got to the sort of bureaucratic hierarchies of structure that we have in our organisations and the way we work together and why we have silos and, and why uh, you have senior people have to sign everything off and multiple sign-offs and all those things uh, that I've certainly experienced as frustrations in charities. Mm -hmm. And it gives some background for why those things have happened. And it also gives you an alternative way to do that successfully in the 21st century. And um, so I heartily recommend it as a very good read. Okay, they're two very different uh, <laughs> inspirations. Yeah, I like to mix it up a bit. But, yeah. Maya Angelou and General MacArthur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Brilliant. Thanks very much for joining me, Joe. I really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, yeah, catch up soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Beth. There are three learnings that I took from my chat with Joe. The first one is the analogy of the tragedy of the commons, which is a useful analogy for the, the sector's use of direct marketing over the years and an analogy that's completely new to me. The second learning is around lifetime value and how we should be elevating it away from the quantitative calculations that we do in direct marketing to taking more of a strategic focus, making it a strategic priority for the organisation. And from there you'll be able to draw on financial and non-financial data to develop your own metrics around that, meaningful measures for your own organisation. The third learning is about internally how we operate. Are our systems and processes still fit for purpose? And do we have a culture that supports our mission? If not, you might need to think about how you control or delete on your organisation to make a step change for further growth. Thanks for joining me today and I hope you can tune in next time.